0: Well, morning everyone. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Sam. I'm one of the elders here in the church. Uh, We do have one more quick announcement to get out of the road. So next week we have a partners meeting. Uh, So for those of you who are church partners, please come along to that meeting. Uh, We have the meeting where we're voting on Drew Lawrence uh, becoming an employed elder two days per week uh, with a particular focus on care. Uh, and connection in the church. So, really important meeting. I've been getting lots of positive feedback since we announced that. Uh, And so, please come along for that partnership meeting where we'll be voting on that next week. Uh, So, hopefully that's clear. All right. Legalism is a funny thing, isn't it? We create a set of rules and we expect others to abide by them. Whilst we happily live a life that denies somebody else's set of rules. And you meet legalists everywhere. Those who want to apply a set of rules to every situation. Only we can have a rule for this and a rule for that. Which of course ultimately just means there are more rules to break. Because rules try to regulate human behavior but not change it right? This is what legalism does. It tries to regulate, but it doesn't change it. Here's one, speeding fines. People don't not speed because it's not that they don't want to anymore. It's because they're worried about the fines they might get or the loss of license. We saw a great example recently with the government forcing people to get vaccinated. It's not that they changed their mind, it's just they didn't want to get fired and lose their house, right? So, Legalists don't change a heart, they try to regulate behaviour through rules. One place that legalism should have no chance of surviving is in the church. You see, legalism leads to hypocrisy, and the church has no place for legalism or hypocrisy. I'll give you one quick example. As most of you know, I didn't grow up in the church and I was saved as a wharfie, and I have tattoos in keeping with being a wharfie. Uh, on my right arm I have a Ned Kelly tattoo which says such is life, that's about as bogan and warfie as you can get. Uh, on my left arm I have a big serpent and on my left ankle I have a four X man tattoo, right? And so these were tattoos in keeping with who I was uh, as a wharfie and then I got saved and I, Jesus transformed me, I was born again. So what I wanted to do, though, was get some tattoos in keeping with who I now was. And so I've got a cross that takes up most of my back, um, on my back, and then instead of just having the serpent now, I have a lion, and he's got his mouth open over the serpent's head, because Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. And I was like, I'll fix you, serpent. Um, and so, so I started getting tattoos within keeping with who I now am. It didn't take me long, though, ever to be in the church, before some old men would come and find me and tell me that my tattoos were wrong. They were sinful. And they would invariably quote Leviticus 19:28: You are not to make gashes on your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. So I started getting hit with this fairly regularly. I began to panic a little bit. Well, hang on a second, what have I done? here's the thing. Do you know what the preceding verse is? I mean the direct preceding verse. Leviticus 19, 27. You are not to cut off the hair at the sides of your head or mar the edges of your beard. Now many of these men that had to go up my tattoos were clean shaven. And clearly according to this text, I'm glorious and godly with my beard and their sinful clean shaven faces have no Right, to condemn my tattoos, right? Um, my, what's my point here? The point is we're not actually under the ceremonial law anymore because Jesus fulfilled the law and set us free. We are saved by grace, amen? What legalism does is it wants to pick one rule here which suits someone's culture but not another rule here, right? It, it, and it leads to hypocrisy And legalism, the reality is, as I said, we're not under the law. We can have a tattoo. We can be clean shaven. We can wear garments of mixed materials and eat bacon. Praise God, right? Because we're not under ceremonial law. So we need to be very careful that we don't create legalism where God has not. Because we will become hypocrites. And we will be found out. None of us are saved by law but only through faith in the death, death and resurrection of Jesus, who fulfilled the law's requirements, paid the penalty of our sin, and grants us his righteousness for our salvation. Right? This is what we're going to see in our passage this morning, amongst other things. We're going to see legalism at its finest, and hypocrisy at its finest, and a big example of why they have no place in Christ's church. So if you have your Bible there, we're going to continue in our forever journey through the Gospel of John. Um, though we are up to chapter 18, we are actually all, we're going to finish John this year. I hope you're all sad about that. Um, and uh, we're still working out exactly what we're going to start with next year. But anyway, John 18, 28 to 40. John 18, 28 to 40. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They did not enter the headquarters themselves, otherwise they would be defiled and unable to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and said, What charge do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Pilate told them, You take him and judge him according to your law. It is not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. They said this so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. Then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you asking this on your own, or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied. Your own nation and chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I would be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You are a king, then Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this, and I've come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth? said Pilate. After he'd said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no grounds for charging him. You have a custom that I release one prisoner to you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They shouted back, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a revolutionary. Amen. All right, this is the passage where I'm packing together this morning. So, The mention of Caiaphas here in John is just to show us, because remember at the end of last week, he'd been interviewed by Annas, then he goes to Caiaphas, and from Caiaphas to Pilate. Caiaphas was the recognized high priest by the Romans, so only Caius had the authority to send Jesus to Pilate. So that's why John mentions that he goes via Caiaphas, because Caiaphas has the authority to send him to Pilate. Then we learn this, that they themselves would not, enter the the dwelling place of Pilate where he conducted his court because they were worried it would defile them and they would be unable to participate in the rest of the Passover festival. This may be that because of some of the Jewish rabbinical writings that declared that entering a Gentile home made you unclean for a day. It's also probably because the Romans were big into practicing abortion and would often bury the bodies of those small babies in their yards out in the grounds. And so the Jews didn't want to enter that because if you came into contact with a dead body, it made you unclean for seven days. And so it would take them outside of the uh, ability to participate in the Passover. Let's pause for a moment. The Jewish leaders here, are before Pilate because they're trying to execute an innocent man on trumped-up charges because he is a threat to their power. And at the same time, they don't want to run the risk of becoming unclean. (laughs) You're getting the irony here? We're here to execute someone who's innocent, but I can't walk in there because I might become unclean. This is the legalistic heart to its core because they are worried about external uncleanliness but not their depraved hearts, right? That is what legalism is all about. Jesus, remember, is the fulfillment of the Passover. He is the lamb. The the bread and wine of communion which we just took replace the Passover meal. The final sacrifice. The Jews are worried about becoming unclean for the Passover as they prepare to kill Jesus, who is now the fulfillment of the Passover, right? This is the reality of what's taking place in this text. Remember in the book of Exodus? They had to take a lamb, sacrifice it, put the blood on the lintels of the door on the sides in the shape of the cross, This is all by the hand of God. But nonetheless, what we're seeing here by the Jews is hypocritical legalism that leads them able to plot murder on one hand and on the other hand, worry about the external practice of religion. Church, this is always the outcome of legalism, even in your own heart. Now, I hope it's not as extreme as this case, but legalism, you will judge others whilst you yourself break laws, right? This is the heart of legalism. This is why Jesus tells us to take the plank out of your own eye before you remove the speck in your brother or sister's eye. In other words, examine yourself fully before you dare pass judgment on somebody else's practice. Because when you examine yourself, guess what you're going to find? You yourself are full of hypocritical actions. And if you can recognize that, it changes the way you approach your brother or sister. In the church, we are called as Christians to judge one another. That's a fact right here in the scripture. To call out the sins in one another's lives. But if we look at the plank first, it stops us from being the judge over somebody's actions. And instead, it becomes two soldiers in a war for purity, helping one another on the journey to victory, right? That's the heart that we have to come to. Legalism, hypocrisy, no place in the church. Help one another. Fight the good fight and finish the race. That's what we want to see in the church of Jesus. What we must avoid is the superior attitude of people like the Jewish leadership, applying law when it suits, while happily condemning the innocent. That is what we see in our, our passage. Now back to our text, and we are introduced to Pontius Pilate, governor over Judea. He held the position for four years at this point, and he was there in that position until AD 37. We have an inscription in the remains of a Roman theatre in Caesarea naming Pontius Pilate as prefect, prefect, which more or less means governor. I tell you this purely to remind you that these things are true. The reason there's a theatre built by the Romans that has Pontius Pilate as prefect, kind of the dedicating person, like we still do to this day, is why? Because he was the dedicating prefect, right? It happens. These things are real. We can go and look at these things uh, to know that they are true. From outside sources of the Bible, we know that Pontius was a weak man who often covered his flaws with acts of brutality. We read about these things in sources outside of the Bible, and the stories of what we see of him in the Bible would confirm that, right? That he's a guy who won't stand on principle and would act brutally to cover up his own weaknesses. So Pilate comes out and asks what charge they bring against Jesus. Now, got to get our setting right here. He was aware that something was going on because if you remember in the text... There was a company of Roman soldiers at the arrest of Jesus. The only way they could get a company of Roman soldiers to go and arrest Jesus means the Jewish leadership have already appeared before Pilate, have already brought accusations against Jesus that required the sending of a Roman company of soldiers. It's important in our context to understand that because that's why this conversation makes sense. If you don't think that through, this conversation doesn't make much sense at all. So, Pilate comes out and says, "What charge do you bring?" It would be a pretty brave and insolent reply to the Roman governor to just simply try and write it off the way they do, right? To just kind of be, oh, you know, it's all done. You know about, you know, it's only because of the previous conversation that they are actually able to answer Pilate the way they do. Why? Why do they just write it off so quickly and so easily before Pilate, right? The answer is they're hoping to go straight to execution. They're hoping they can do away with trial. They can do away with any evidence. They can do away with anything. They're like, Pilate, we already talked about this. Now just executing. That's what they're hoping for. That's what their reply indicates. If he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him to you, Right? That's what they're trying to do. Just let's jump to execution. Now, they also don't really have an accusation to bring, by the way, only apart from what they've already told Pilate. Now, I'm going to pause here just quickly. This is a pretty big example of this kind of... They don't want to justify their actions in having Jesus executed. They don't want to have to defend their actions in having Jesus taken down. They don't want to have to present an argument because they don't really have any. They just want Pilate to act without having any evidence whatsoever. Can I just pause church and say, gee, that reminds me a lot of society right now. Can, Can we just pause in church and think about this, this whole cancel culture, as they call it? What's going on now with social media? In an instant, suddenly we want people's career destroyed. We want them taken down publicly. We want them taken down socially. We want them fired. All in an instant, without any evidence, without any trial, without any understanding of what's truly going on, just do it. This is the culture that's kind of developed in the world. And I don't care if we're talking about celebrities whom you know, I have no attachment to celebrities. They're still worthy of having a fair trial, aren't they? Aren't they? Aren't all people? I don't care if we're talking about celebrities, sports stars, singers. I don't care who we're talking about. Church, can we not be people who just want to call for people's downfall without any evidence, without any trial, without any chance for people to give their say, especially within the church? Let's extend grace to people. This kind of attitude that we see right here, it's just appalling. And unfortunately, we're really seeing this happen a lot in the church nowadays. Jesus, as we saw last week, was basically demanding that they give him a fair trial. And they don't. Well, church, we should be practisers of that. People deserve a fair trial. So can we please not get into this whole cancel culture rubbish that's so prevalent? All right, back to our text. So I think Pilate is probably a little bit annoyed by them trying to get him to answer quickly. And this is what you've got to understand in the passage. No, don't worry about it. We wouldn't have brought him to you if he wasn't a criminal, is what they say. So Pilate then forces them to admit that Pilate is the only one with any authority or control. What does Pilate say to them? Well, you go and do it. What do they have to respond with then? We actually don't have the authority to have Jesus executed. Just understand here what Pilate's doing is putting them back in their place. So if you get the flow of it, Pilate says, what charge do you bring against him? We wouldn't have brought him if he wasn't a criminal. Just execute him. Pilate says, okay, off you go then. Actually, we can't. We need your permission. Right? Pilate's just showing who's actually in charge and who has the authority in this situation. This is the the little wrestle that's going on here between Jewish leadership uh, and Pilate. In short, he forces them to acknowledge they have no power to do what they wish and they must play by Pilate's rules and not their own. The one thing that doesn't seem to matter to either group in this power play is whether or not Jesus is guilty or deserves a fair trial. Right? There's just this little power play going on. The Jews tell us point blank they want Jesus to die. They just don't have the authority to do so. Guess what? Neither the Jews nor Pilate has the authority to take Jesus' life. Neither of them. Jesus is the only one who has authority to give up his life. So they can have this trial, and they can have the farcical nature that it takes, but the penalty of sin is death, and Jesus never sinned. No one can take Jesus' life but Jesus. What happens on the cross, by the way? Did the Jews kill Jesus, or did the Romans kill Jesus? Neither. Does he not dismiss his spirit? They do not have the authority to take Jesus' life. Just important that we pause And remember that, right? Jesus is in control, regardless of what the Sanhedrin and what Pilate think. Okay? Jesus is in control. That's John's point here when he says this was so that we would show what kind of death Jesus would have. Back in John 12, Jesus said he would be lifted up, that he would be crucified, that the hand of God was all over the death of Jesus to pay the penalty of our sin. And John pauses here to say, this is the point of what's going on here. This is all by God's own hand. The Jewish motivation was sinful. Pilate's acquiescence in the end to their motivation is sinful, but God is using all of this as his definite plan. No one has the right to take Christ's life from him. It is only by the hand of God that this happens, okay? God is in control. Our scene moves away now from the Jewish leadership to inside the praetorium where Pilate questions Jesus on his own. Remember, there had been previous discussions between the Jewish leadership and Pilate, which is why Pilate begins with, are you the king of the Jews? Has you ever wondered... Does that make sense? Why would he start with, are you the king of the Jews? It's because of the previous conversation that the Jewish leadership have had with Pilate the accusations they've brought against Jesus. It's not hard to think how that conversation went that got them a Roman company of soldiers to arrest Jesus. We're speculating here, but let's hazard a guess together, church. They turned up to Pontius Pilate and said, there's a guy called Jesus He's massing a following, he calls himself the king of the Jews and he wants to overthrow Rome. Reckon that's a fair guess? I think it is. And Pilate responds with what? He's a company of Roman soldiers to arrest him. Okay? Pilate's first question to Jesus is what? Are you the king? Right? This is the accusation that has been brought against Jesus. Jesus' response is perfect and amazing as usual. If this is Pilate's question, perhaps he had heard about Jesus' miracles and was curious. Then Jesus might have given him a fuller explanation, a chance for Pilate to actually respond in faith to the rule of the true king, Jesus. If, however, he's simply sprouting the nonsense of the Sanhedrin and Jesus has to unravel all the lies that have just been told about him to get to the truth. So how does Jesus respond? Why do you ask? By the way, it straight away puts Christ in authority again, like we see in every conversation. Pilate has a question, Jesus res- responds with a question to straight away put him back on the front foot. Why do you ask, Pilate? I said, if Pilate said, because I'm interested. Jesus may well have shared the good news of him, of the coming kingdom of God. But no, that's not where Pilate is actually at. Pilate is annoyed. He doesn't get the answer he wants. Who is Jesus to ask him the questions? And so he responds with a sullen, get the feel of the text here, I'm not a Jew, am I? In other words, I don't don't personally care about any of this Jesus. This has nothing to do with me on a personal level. What are you asking me about what I think or or why I care? I don't care at all. This is the response Pilate's giving. It's, It's nothing to do with me. I'm not a Jew. This is a Jewish thing. His arrogance. He misses a chance here of grace, of finding out more about Jesus. Pilate then says, your nation and chief priests, the Sanhedrin, handed you over. What have you done? That's really interesting. It means Pilate isn't convinced by the argument they brought that sent the company of soldiers to arrest Jesus. What is it, Jesus, that you have done that has the entire Jewish population calling for your head? That's Pilate's question. What is it, Jesus? What is it about you that has these guys coming before me and asking for you to be executed? So Jesus now clarifies The truth with Pilate. And that is this truth. That Jesus is not, hear me on this, Jesus is not a national king. And he is not interested in national boundaries. Jesus is not the king of Australia. And never was. He's not the king of America, never was. He's not the king of China, the Vatican City, or any other thing like that, for these are worldly boundaries policed by worldly people. Jesus is not the king of national people. Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords, and yes, he's king overall, but he's not interested in the national boundaries. At the moment, the reign of Christ is in his church and the church knows no national boundaries. The church knows no racism. The church knows no distinction in class or rank or society. The reign of Christ is in his church and the church does not have national or racial boundaries. Amen? He's not the king. Of nations and never was. You realize that's impossible? Oh, such and such is a Christian nation. Garbage. A nation can hold Christian principles. They're not a Christian nation. There's only going to be one Christian nation, and that's when Christ reigns for eternity, and all people who are with him are saved. Show me a nation where a hundred percent of people are following the lordship of Christ. And that's a Christian nation. Ever seen that? Right? No. He doesn't reign over a nation. He reigns over people who give him their life. Okay? That's what Christ does. So this is what Jesus is saying to Pilate. I am a king, but he's no threat to Rome in sense of wanting to take over Rome as a national ruler. That is not what Christ is about. Jesus proves his point by stating that his disciples did not fight for him. Jesus, in fact, rebuked Peter for doing so. That Jesus simply handed himself over. Why? Because he was never fighting for an earthly kingdom. That could be won by force of arms. Right? That is not who Christ is. Pilate listens to this whole explanation. His kingdom's not an earthly kingdom. And Pilate only hears and understands and grasps one thing. Aha! You are a king. Right? That's the one thing Pilate can grasp. He's got no grasp of the spiritual realities, but he's like, You did say that you're a king. So Jesus explains it a little bit more clearly in our passage. You rightly say that I am a king. I was born for this. I've come into the world. For what? To testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Why does Jesus link his kingdom to the truth? Because his kingdom is the kingdom of truth. Jesus is the revelation of God. Jesus is the truth of God. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. Who is it that gets to be in the kingdom of God? Those who accept the truth. That's what Jesus is saying. My kingdom is only of those who can accept the truth, who believe in the truth. Those who have stopped lying to themselves and others. Those who have stopped false pretense. Those who have been humbled. Those, in short, who know these truths that God is holy, set apart, above, beyond, perfect. God is holy. Secondly, that they are sinful, right? This is the truth, those who accept the truth. God is holy and you are sinful is the truth. You will not get to heaven by being a good bloke because God's holy standard is perfection. To never lie, to never deceive, to never have a lustful thought, to never steal, To never exchange the glory of God for the glory of something else. God's standard is perfection. He is holy and he demands that everyone who would be with him will be holy. So you can only come if you accept the truth that he is holy and you are sinful. Right? That is who Jesus says belongs in my kingdom. God is holy. You are sinful. You have no excuse and you deserve death. That is the truth. And when you come to that place where you can say that it's true, God is holy, I am sinful, and the rightful and just penalty of my sin is death. That's when on your knees you recognize that Jesus died in your place. At that point, you are ready to throw your trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus that he paid the penalty of your sin. And then on the basis of his righteousness, God declares that you are now holy when you've given your life to Christ. And on the basis of his finished work, you are holy and you will dwell with God forevermore. Amen? But that is the truth. And Jesus says, the kingdom that I rule over The people in my kingdom, they are the ones of the truth. They have come to that recognition of their sinfulness, and they have put their faith in me, and that is his kingdom. I love this quote from Spurgeon, right? Spurgeon's got a way with words. If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. How good's that? Think about that for a second. If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. If people knew your thoughts, mentioned this before, what if on the PowerPoint up here, right, we just, throughout the service, we went, right, Calvin, and we're just going to put his thoughts over the last two weeks and we're just going to scroll them up there for you all to read. Right, then we go, right, we're done with Calvin, Now we're going to just pick Helen down here. We're just going to put all that up there. We're going to feed that. And you can all sit there and read everyone's thoughts over the last year. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? Looking forward to your turn, I bet. But God knows them all. He knows your motivations. He knows your selfishness. And Christ died for you and paid the penalty of your sin and on the basis of his righteousness you will be with God forever that's the truth and those are the people who Christ is king over Jesus presents this to Pilate and his response is a beautiful one that you'd likely hear today what is truth in other words, you've got your truth and I've got my truth and everyone's got their own truth and everyone, let's be happy because we've all got truth. Right? Isn't that what you'd hear today? And Jesus has just said, no, there's one truth, I'm it and my subjects are those who accept it. And then Pilate tries that, oh, everyone's got their own truth. right? Garbage, Pilate, you're going to hell. Right? That's, that's the gospel. right? That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is given an invitation here. You must accept the truth of Jesus to be saved. In closing, Pilate understands that Jesus is not a political threat to Rome. And so he goes back to the Jewish leadership and says, I find no grounds for charging him. But note this. I have no grounds. I release a prisoner at the Passover. Would you like me to release Jesus? Can you just think about that statement? I have no grounds against this man. Would you like me to release him? In other words, I'm happy to hold him and punish him, put him to death, whilst I'm saying I've got nothing against him. No no grounds for a charge. All right? Like, this is the, the terrible nature of what's going on in this whole court case. Would you like me to release Jesus? Thus, at the instigation of the chief priests, who normally hate, the Zealots. The Zealots were revolutionaries who wanted to overthrow Rome from violence. They normally hated those guys because they perceived them as a threat to their own power and prestige and influence. But rather than Jesus, they're happily called out to release Barabbas, a known revolutionary. Rather than Jesus, they're like, yeah, let the Zealot go, because at the moment we perceive Jesus as a greater threat to our power. Now think again, just really quickly about the irony of this. Here's Pilate. His one concern about Jesus is that he might be a revolutionary. And so he investigates him to figure out whether he is a revolutionary or not, decides that he isn't, and goes, okay, I'm happy to release him. The crowd then asks for them to release what? A convicted revolutionary. And Pilate lets him go, is what we're going to see. The whole thing could not be more corrupt. If you tried to invent a more ironic, stupid situation, you couldn't, right? This is the heart of people. Well, that's what we'll see next week, but here are two takeaways. If you're a Christian, you are saved by grace. You have not earned salvation. Treat others with the love and grace you have been shown. If you are not a Christian, then you belong to the kingdom of this world, and you need to accept the truthful rule of the true King Jesus and accept that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is your only hope of salvation. That's it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, it highlights the deep, sinful hypocrisy of all of our hearts. On one hand, we are happy to pretend that we're good and righteous and condemn others. While we ourselves practice deceit. Lord, I thank you for the finished work of Jesus, that He paid the penalty of our sin on the cross. Lord, we can't earn our salvation, but we can give our lives to Christ and accept his salvation. Lord, we pray. Pray for everyone in this room that they would give their life to Christ and know that they are saved by his work and never by their own. Lord, we thank you for the death and resurrection of Christ. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen.